If I were to tell you that 95 towns, 18 counties, 10 city squares, and more than 30 major streets were named after a single person, you would think that person is important, right? Well, it turns out that one of the major figures of the founding era, the Marquis de Lafayette, has fallen out of public consciousness over the years. He's not even well-remembered in France where he's from, which, you'd think, would make him more appealing to an American audience. Today, we're joined by podcaster Mike Duncan to talk about his book, The Hero of Two Worlds. with us, author and historian Mike Duncan. Welcome, Mike. Thanks for joining us. Thanks very much for having me. And we're really excited to have you on, mostly because, uh, well, one, because I've, I've listened to an embarrassing number of hours of your, <laughs> you talking uh, over the years. Great, <laughs> and great. Uh, thank also, you. Thank you, thank you. Um, I love talking about guys like Lafayette, uh, uh, in particular, like guys like Lafayette and John Lawrence and, you know, Nathaniel Green, dudes from the revolution that don't get a lot of play uh, I think mostly because Hamilton sucked all the air out of the room over the last couple of years. Um, he's been being hey, pretty do not, popular. Do not besmirch Hamilton. It probably <laughs> got this book contract for me. <laughs> <laughs> Listen, not, not just besmirching the, the, the name at all, but the historical figure. I was like, oh, you know, there's some other dudes that were around at the time that deserve to be talked Very about. Very true. Very yeah. true. Um, so just as a basic, um, like for a layman, someone who doesn't know anything about anything. Um, how would you describe Lafayette in like three sentences or like a little like an elevator pitch version of him? Like who was that guy? I mean, at base, like the way he enters the historical picture is he is a, is he a, he's a young French aristocrat. He's 19 years old. He's incredibly rich. He lives in the inner circle of, uh, of the court at Versailles. Uh, you know, he's in the social milieu with Louis XVI and with Marie Antoinette, like the, that's his social scene. And he gets it into his head that what he really wants to do is go uh, run away from home, cross the Atlantic and join the Continental Army to help them in their sort of glorious war for liberty against uh, the tyrannical British crown. Um, and that's about as much as he knows about what's going on in in the Continental Army. So so that's who he is. He, he's somebody who is is fired up by a kind of uh, political and social idealism. And also he's a soldier at heart. Like that's the other part of it is that he he raised himself to believe that he was going to be a great soldier. And so when the American war broke out, he was like, oh, I can combine the fact that I want to be a great military leader with these ideals that they're fighting for. It's not just some war of uh, war of dynastic succession. This is actually maybe a, a fight for something. Uh, and so I'm going to go join that war. And that's how he gets going. And then he's just in the mix of uh, revolutionary politics for like the next 50 years through the age of democratic revolution. He's just, he's involved in everything until he dies uh, in 1834. But he's really basically a kid when he comes over, isn't he? He's about 19. Yep. He was, well, he was married and he had a kid, which complicates his fun. <laughs> I ran away from home story uh, because, you know, it's not just that he was like a kid running away from like his, his parents, although him and his father-in-law did not get along with at all. And that was part of what motivated him to leave as he, as he was not getting along with his father-in-law. Um, but he did run away from, uh, from Adrienne and his daughter, although, you know, him and Adrienne have a great relationship uh, throughout their lives. But in the moment, uh, he's he's in that halfway house between being he's not a child. Right. I mean, it's 19. It's the 18th century. So like he is, he, uh, you know, he's he's more mature than I think the average American 19 year old is, uh, but not that much more mature. Right. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. He's a 19 year old. He's still only ni- he's, yeah, he's still he's only 19 and really doesn't know what's going on. That's so funny. I actually think that it might be a common theme of of guys that came over here to to find a new life. Like if, if I'm remembering correctly, Lynn Thomas Paine also like just abandoned a family in in England. Yeah, <laughs> like Lawrence, Lawrence did. Up. Yeah, Lawrence yeah. did too. Mm-hmm. It's not good. I mean, I put no. it in my book. Not, I was not a like, good this spin. Was I was like, this is this is not good. There, what you're doing, <laughs> not, not a good look. But uh, it's not a good it's, look. I think it's really interesting. Um, this is uh, a a at. The, a little historical like loop of fate that I find ironic uh, in Lafayette's story when you, you mentioned that he didn't get along with his father uh, uh, or his father-in-law but then he yeah. uh, or his stepfather you said or father-in-law 
father-in-law it's father-in-law yeah father-in-law gotcha. yeah because he his father tragically passed away when he was young right mm-hmm. which is ironic the fact that it was he passed away fighting in a conflict that was kind of sort of started by the guy he later then came to believe or came to understand as his uh as pseudo you know surrogate father later in life right okay <laughs> yeah i always found yeah, it funny they, that you know he he loses his father because of that gets kicked out of the military because of the reforms that were a result of the seven years war that mm-hmm. for, we've talked about mm-hmm. it before in the podcast um okay great. how yeah. how washington was at the center of a political military conflict that kind of sparked off what became the seven years war internationally right um and then later he ends up back on the shores looking up to the same guy. It's a, it's a very funny right, little he like. does. And yeah, and it's, I mean, a little bit like when I look at the origins of the Seven Years' War, I think that we Americans can be a bit parochial about like what triggered the Seven Years' War. And so it's like it's Washington and the Ohio Valley that like blows everything sure. up. But it's like the Prussians were also pretty mad at the Austrians and fighting over Silesia at the same time. And so there's a lot of, there's a lot of things that are going on in Central Europe that are also like triggers of the Seven Year War. But that's, it, it, it is how they come together. So I, I, I tend to not say that George Washington, like, quote unquote, started the Seven Years War. Um, but it, yeah. And I, you know, I never came across anything where, you know, Lafayette really uh, grappled with the fact that, you know, if, if Washington hadn't uh, blundered around, you know, the Ohio, right. then maybe his father would have still been alive and he wouldn't have needed a surrogate father. Um, who, yeah, which that's Lafayette more of a hindsight. For, like, it's all like, yeah. yeah. Right. It's a little bit of like a, you know, we have the benefit of a hundred, couple hundred years of hindsight to, to see mm-hmm. those patterns. Yeah, it's great, those it's larger great, patterns yeah, it's great to have hindsight. Yeah. Cause we can be like, <laughs> I wouldn't have done that. I wouldn't have done that. And then it's super easy. Um, Lynn, you, we were actually chatting about the, uh, that father surrogate father for the surrogate son relationship. Yes. Do you wanna, yeah. Yeah. So I feel like maybe starting 10 years ago, it was really believed by historians and sort of really shared that they had this father son relationship. And then I read some things where some historians are sort of pushing back and saying, no, Lafayette did see George Washington as a father figure, but George Washington wasn't really (laughs) looking at Lafayette as, you know, oh, you're my surrogate son. And I'm kind of iffy on that because I know George Washington tended to take these young men under his wing um, and he didn't have any children of his own. Mm -hmm. So I'm kind of torn. Um, how did he see Lafayette and how did Lafayette see him? And is there a difference in culture here that could make us interpret it um, differently? You know, the French versus American. Yeah. I mean, this is for Lafayette. Let's just start with Lafayette and his relationship, like projecting towards George Washington. Um, Mm -hmm. I think that Lafayette very much saw in Washington something of a surrogate father and certainly like the most important older male role model in his life. I mean, in, in their correspondence, it's never like mon cher père, right? He's never calling him like my dear father or anything right. like that. It's always like my dear general or it's my dear friend, like mon cher ami. Uh, so you, you don't really get sort of like officially believing like, okay, you're my dad now because I never had a dad and my other dad, uh, uh, the, the Duke Diane and me don't get along at all. And uh, <laughs> so... But I, I do believe that when Washington, excuse me, when Lafayette comes into Washington's uh, life and Washington says to him, you know, I would like you to please consider yourself a member of my family, that there was a bit of a language barrier uh, that existed that Lafayette interpreted that to mean like I'm inviting you to join like the Washington family. And he right. believed that this was like the signal marker, that this was like a personal request um, and a personal relationship that had now formed very early. And really, I think what was going on at the time is that that's what Washington referred to his his military, his senior military staff was, you know, his family in the Continental right. Army. So he, he was saying, like, join that family, consider yourself a part of this family with these other guys with Green um, and, and with, uh, you know, with Henry Knox and you'll be a part of that crew. Mm-hmm. Uh, and Lafayette understood that to mean like I'm now you know, in your family, George Washington's family. Interesting. Now, yeah. Now from Washington's side, um, I do think that it's true that there was more of a, like a, like a father son dynamic coming out, coming from Lafayette's side mm-hmm. rather than Washington's side. Okay. And, and Washington though, you know, we know that he didn't have children or, right. and, and so he doesn't have any sons, but there, and there are, as you said, these other sort of fatherless 
sons mm-hmm. who are out there, like Ham- and Hamilton's Hamilton. a great example of this. Right. Yeah. Um, and so it, it was, I think, very easy to say, well, you know, Lafayette was looking for a father, and, wa- and Lafayette was looking for a father, and Washington was looking for a son and found it. Mm-hmm. But I, the, when you when we look into the relationship between Washington and Hamilton, it's not really a father son relationship. It's it's a very transactional you know business partnership and political partnership that's going mm-hmm. on there. But you don't really get the sense that Hamilton was looking at Washington as a father, nor that Washington was looking at Hamilton as a son. Mm-hmm. And so I don't think that Washington was necessarily looking for a son in Lafayette. But what I will say is it was a very special relationship. And I think that every people noted at the time, they're kind of surprised with how much attention and affection uh, Washington displayed towards Lafayette and that it really was a step above the way he treated other junior officers and the way that he treated the other young men in his life. And that there were things that Lafayette could get away with uh, around Washington that other people couldn't get away with. And, you know, there's very famously like Washington didn't like to be touched by anybody. And there's, I forget, I always, I always forget who it is that did this, but there was a dare to have one of the continental generals go slap him on the back and be like, what's up, George? And, and, or, and, and Washington just gave him this death stare, right? And like, do what, well, what are you doing? And, um, but when, uh, when, when Lafayette shows up, He's allowed to embrace Washington. He's allowed to kiss him on both cheeks. You know, it's, wow. it's a very, there is there is some like real affection that is there, and all throughout the rest of their their lives and their correspondence, you know, Lafayette is treated with with an, a, an emotional affection uh, by Washington that I think is above the way he treats other people. But I don't really get the sense. But he was always saying too, my dear friend Lafayette, my dear friend Lafayette. He's not saying like, oh, you're my, you know, my dear son or, or anything like yeah. that. It's always, it's always, it's always expressed in friendship terms. But yeah, I think that's, that's where we're at. Yeah. I, I, I think we're kind of on the same page in, in terms of Lafayette definitely felt very, very close. I mean, he named his son after him. And then like when stuff, yeah, started, for sure. when, yeah, when stuff started to, you know, hit the fan in France, where did he send him? He ended up staying with Washington at the present. You know, his his son ended up coming to the Americas yep. and, and staying with mm-hmm. Washington. Uh, his son was named George Washington Lafayette. Yep. You know, and was hanging around the U.S. for a bunch in the 1790s. But um, I think that do you think that that relationship actually benefited from the fact that Lafayette was in France after the revolution? Because, like you said, the Hamilton it was it was very transactional. However, it became more. I think at least more rigid as time as like they got to working together in, in the government. Um, mm-hmm. Like you know, the fact that like they didn't work together and there was some distance. It, it was still like casual ish uh, relationship and where versus like, Oh, then we need to like decipher our differing opinions on things and get to work on very tangible mm-hmm, stuff, mm-hmm. which can come to conflict and kind of sour a relationship or at least complicate one. Um, do you think that distance actually benefited a little bit? Like he went on to continue to fight for the same things and it, but Washington wasn't directly involved in those. Yeah. I mean, like if, if Lafayette had stayed in the Americas, though, I don't think that their relationship changes that much. I don't think that the fact that Lafayette was removed across the Atlantic sort of allowed Washington to be more expressive emotionally towards him than he would have been with with people that are close to him in his life. Um, I, I do think that sort of the patterns of of their relationship would have stayed the same because the times after the war, there's there's one time basically that Lafayette comes back after the war and stays with Washington. And they're together like morning, noon, and night, like the couple mm-hmm. of weeks that Lafayette is staying out uh, in Mount Vernon. And, you know, when they parted, like it is, you know, it is a tearful farewell that is going on on both sides. Like Washington is crying and Lafayette is crying too. And Lafayette is saying like, you know, but I'll, but I'll see you again. Like I'll be back like next year or the year after that. Like this isn't forever. And Washington is saying like, uh, this might actually be forever. And it meant a lot to Washington to uh, confronting the fact that he was probably seeing Lafayette for the last time. But uh, but but Lafayette being over there, I think, you know, you, you always get the sense that all through the French Revolution that Washington is concerned not just about uh, Lafayette's, you know, role in politics or the things that he's trying to achieve over there and how well things are going, like, on the political battlefield. He's also like, my dear Marquis, like, I don't want you to die, please. Like, I'm, I'm a little concerned about what's happening over there, and I'm concerned about um, your personal safety, right? Mm-hmm. That was always something that was being expressed. So I have a, a a little story that I just have to share about um, Washington and Lafayette. 
um, I worked on the Martha Washington papers. Okay. And one of the letters that is at Mount Vernon is the condolence letter from Lafayette to Martha Washington. And I think it's the only time it was me and a colleague. I think it's the only time we sat there and we read the entire letter and we had tears in our eyes mm. in the archives because it was so beautifully written. And he does talk about his uh, paternal love for Washington, but also his maternal love for for mm-hmm. Martha. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's just such a such a beautiful letter. And it's one of the things that I think about when I think about Washington and Lafayette um, sort of as their friendship. And even if he wasn't a father figure, perhaps mentor might be for a better sure, way for to sure. put it. Yeah. And for sure. But and mentor, but with real and with real emotional you know, right. to this relationship. It, it's a, it's a real connection between them. And, you know, in reading around, uh, reading around their lives, it, it is something that pops up in other people's correspondence. If they are, if they're in the room with Lafayette and Washington, they're like, oh, these, you know, it's, it's really, there's something here, um, that they care a lot about each other. Yeah. I think it's also important to remember just a, a like a small aside that family units weren't quite as rigid as they like, weren't as private as what we think of them as they are today in the 18th century. Mm-hmm. Like people were mm-hmm. oftentimes sending cousins and nephews. People were like, there were lots of people that came through and did pseudo raising of family members and children of friends in their own household. Like it was a little bit yeah. more fluid than it is today than what we would think. Yeah. Of. And, Lafayette, and Lafayette had that relationship with some of the kids of the other major generals. Cause he was the, he was the youngest of all the major generals. And mm-hmm. so many of the people who he was, you know, he, who he's comrades with and colleagues with, they had children who were not that much uh, younger, but like a good, like 10, 15 years younger than Lafayette himself. Um, and he was always trying to get them, you know, like come to, come to Paris, stay with me. You can get a good education here in the center of civilization, not, you know, no offense. And you're <laughs> in Harvard, this like backwoods, you know, like, like place where you make ministers, um, like come here to the seat of civilization and we'll give you like an actual education, which he did. And he, and he would host people, um, and he was godfather to to many of um, uh, many of the children of his comrades, uh, in the same way that I think uh, Washington was for him. Which which I believe also probably comes from the fact that once Wash once Lafayette latches onto Washington, um, he he loo- Washington looms large in Lafayette's life right to the very end. Like to his deathbed, Lafayette is trying to model himself off of George Washington. Yeah, that's that's uh, yeah. It's, it's actually. True. You can see that he's thinking about Washington pretty consistently, even like in the throes of the revolutions. My favorite mm-hmm. artifact out Mount Vernon is the key to the Bastille mm-hmm. that is hanging on the wall For there sure. that Lafayette yeah. sent. Uh, mm-hmm. the, sent Which Washington Tom Payne, with, delivered by Tom Payne. You know, that's a, yeah. that's a lovely little, that's a lovely little story. But uh, it was, so this podcast is a little bit of like a, on, on the low a historiography idea because it's you know about things that don't end up in the history books or don't end up in the common narrative and, and I listened to a couple of interviews that you did about the about the book and one of the reasons was to give you know uh, the marquee his due yeah. um, is there do you see a reason why he might not be part of the core narrative of of the American Revolution or the age of revolutions in general. Like, he, he, like he's, it, I, he pops up all the time and he, like mm-hmm. writing letters to all sorts of people all over the world, um, but is still considered a little bit of a periphery figure, like an interesting person from an American revolutionary standpoint. But even in France, uh, not not as core to their story. <laughs> well, the, the French, the French certainly don't think he's core to anything. No. They barely <laughs> even remember him. Right. Um, yeah. He's, he's, a, he's a kind of a non-entity in France, um, which I think, I think the French frankly get wrong. Uh, I think that Lafayette is more important to their history than, than they realize. Although when I would say this to French people, <laughs> they wouldn't listen to me. I, I, there's um, a couple of French scholars that I think I might agree with you. Uh, yeah, at least, yeah, at least yeah, a couple yeah, that we've yeah, talked yeah, about. No, <laughs> okay, they're yeah, they're out there, but like in in my you know, I lived in Paris for three years when I was writing the book, um, and it was a lot of like, who are you talking about? And like, and then I'd be at a <laughs> oh, library. Wow. I was at a I was at a library. Oh yeah, very much like who are you talking about? And uh, there was a library I went to one time uh, to get some archival material, and they asked me who I was writing about, 
I said, oh, I'm, I'm doing a project that's, you know, a lot of stuff on the French Revolution and the Revolution of 1830. And she was like, what's the subject? And I said, it's Lafayette. And she said, well, of course it's Lafayette. You're an American. Uh, you're the only people who ask for these papers. <laughs> like nobody else cares I, I, about this. Guy. I will say the only French scholars we've talked to are French scholars of the American Revolution. There's not many yeah. of them, but there's a couple there. So like that, it, yeah, it's a little yeah, biased. Yeah, because yeah. <laughs> yeah, they, they don't care about the American Revolution like at all. Like it's it's very much like a, it's a, a minor prelude to the main event, which is 1789 right. for them. And, and they don't think right. much of the American Revolution. Um, they don't, it's, it's ancillary to their story. But to answer your question, right, like is Lafayette a peripheral figure in the American revolution. Yeah, 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 for sure. Like I don't, I would not call him a central part of, um, sort of what happened during the American revolution. He's in the, he's in the colorful cast of characters, uh, who sort of join in. He's there with Von Steuben and he's there with Kachusko and he's there with, uh, you know, uh, Pulaski, the, these foreign officers that are coming over. And I think that he's sort of slots and he fills the French slot, um, for the sort of the, the international cast of characters who join the American revolution. Um, I, I do believe that he uh, that he did play a a major facilitating role in making sure that the alliance between the French and the Americans actually did actually was productive. Um, I do think that absent Lafayette, the French and Americans still form that alliance. I, I do think that that happens even absent. Like if Lafayette had drowned in the boat um, uh, in 1777. Uh, do the French ultimately join that war thanks to, you know, the work of Benjamin Franklin and other diplomats? Right. I do think that that happens because I do think that it was in France's interest kind of at the moment uh, to stick it to the British because they saw an opportunity to. But when Lafayette, once the alliance is formed, Lafayette is somebody who is in the tent with George Washington, the most important American, you know, on the game board. And he has a direct line to Louis the 16th, Marie Antoinette, the Comte de Vergennes, uh, who are, is the inner circle of decision-making power in France. And so he is a living direct link. He can write, he can write personal letters to these people, um, and act as a translator and act as a, as a go-between, uh, between, you know, these Anglo Protestant, you know, colonists and these French Catholic, like aristocratic officers. And I mean, that, that is some oil and water stuff. Like this is, these are some <laughs> of the strangest bedfellows that we have seen like in, in politics in a long time. And Lafayette was there to make sure that the oil and the water just, I guess, got sprayed directly into the face of the British. Um, <laughs> even, if they, even if they didn't mix, even if they didn't mix, at least they were being sprayed right. in the same direction. Um, but then when we move on from the American Revolution, um, you know, one of the things that actually surprised me when I was doing my own podcast series on the French Revolution is I did kind of go into it with this belief that Lafayette was just a, a side character, right? That he was somebody, he was there, um, he's a hero of the American Revolution. And so like, he's a part of things, he's in the mix, but like, he's not like a giant of the revolution. Um and, you know, ultimately other people eclipse him a little bit, but man, 1787, 88, 89, like the, the year of 1789 and 1790, like if there's any one person who you would say is most emblematic of this period, who, who most, uh, who the revolution uh, sort of runs through the most in terms of the ideals that are being professed, the events on the ground, like the way, the way things actually go, like it runs through the Marquis de Lafayette. And everybody understands this at the time, especially once he becomes uh, the head of the National Guard. And he's he's trying to run revolutionary Paris and, and maintain order and liberty at the same time. And you get to the summer of 1790 in the Fête de la Fédération, which is a, a little bit of the, of the French believing uh, that the French Revolution is over that they've done it. They've got a constitution, they've got a bill of rights, you know, the declaration of the rights of man. Um, mm -hmm. And this is a big celebration of the end of the revolution. And who is literally at the center of this? It's Lafayette. He's mm -hmm. the one swearing everybody to this oath. The king is in a, like physically, the king is in a platform on one side of the Champ de Mars. Um, the National Assembly is on another side of the Champ de Mars. And in the middle, there's an altar of the nation. And it's, that's where Lafayette is standing. And so all, then, seven, so now we're in 1790. And from here, he begins to run, you know, events get the better of him. Um, and I'm not sure that events wouldn't have gotten the better of anybody. But yeah, by 1792, he's pitched overboard and larger sort of historical forces like Robespierre and Danton and Desmoulins and Marat. Now they are, they rise and they sort of take over 
the reigns of the French Revolution, and Lafayette is treated as this sort of uh, you know reactionary conservative who was trying to defend the monarchy as opposed to being like a progressive you know reformist revolutionary force. And uh, and so the, then when we look back with the fullness of 1793 and 1794, people tend to say like, oh, well, he wasn't that big of a deal. Everything he was trying to do failed. And so he must have been a lightweight, which I think if you actually walk through it without the benefit of hindsight and do it as a historian does without knowing what's coming next, it's really hard to say that Lafayette wasn't one of the most important people in the French Revolution in those mm-hmm. first couple of years. And so I want to I want to enter him in that story because I think he deserves it. Right. Yeah, just for for those who aren't, aren't super familiar with the French Revolution, es- essentially uh, Lafayette was a big figure before started head, head started rolling. Uh, essentially, mm-hmm. like really, yeah, like before people yeah, started getting when, killed. The, when the head he, started rolling, that's when he. I mean, he skipped town, man. He was he was a general uh, out on out on the front lines because they have now. If you don't know the French Revolution, I'll just editorialize. They stupidly declared war on the Austrians and Prussians and created this big <laughs> giant European war uh, that they never should have done. And Rousseau, you know, God bless him you know, kind of screwed all that up. Uh, but, uh, there was a, there was a great insurrection in August of 1792. And this is when the Jacobins and the Republicans, it, you could even call it the second French revolution sort of overturn the, the constitutional order that had been established in 1789. And Lafayette has to, in the middle of the night, like get on a horse and, and cross the lines because Denton has signed an arrest warrant that will almost certainly end with him being executed. It was a mess that French Revolution. Yeah. Just right. oh, yeah. yeah, it gets messy real fast. Real messy. I get to uh, actually. Uh, this is a, a a little aside, but so when I, on a school trip when I was younger, you know, I think I guess middle school, we go to New York, we go visit the Statue of Liberty. And they're like, oh yeah, we got this from France. Mm-hmm. And I think it was like, you know, that was like just post 9-11 or like right around like the, the, the year we invaded Iraq or whatever. And, and I was like, at the time, I was like, that's super weird. <laughs> I was like, why would France give us stuff? Like when I was like, what kind of close relationship do we have with with France? And, uh, and but learning about the how tight and how necessary they were for the American Revolution to succeed. Mm-hmm. Um, that's the moment when the French Revolution becomes a mess. That's like the really the time at which like this, like the the first freedom fries are sort of like they're not era begins, like where we start to distance ourselves from that. Um, uh, but I think he's it's interesting that he is like part of neither story in a really, really tight it, it, in like a core fashion or at least part of the general narrative Um like a little bit because of that, because he's a, a hero of both of the American world and the French and the um, mm-hmm. American and France. And then we that relationship itself sours over the over those years. Um, and so like they, it makes sense that the bridge between the two worlds, the marquee sort of sours, at least it doesn't fall in line with that narrative as as, as time goes on. Yeah. And by, by the time, you know, later in his life, um, you know, when he comes back for his tour, uh, mm-hmm. you know, he like him and France have been like fully rehabilitated. Um, right. and he is considered like a great national hero of the United States. Like, like we considered him in his own lifetime by the 1820s to be a great figure in American history. Uh, especially because he was still, because he was so young, when they made him a major general, they made him a major general at the age of 19, which you should really not be making major generals of 19 year olds, but they had to uh, because he had a direct line to the king and queen. And um, second, now Congress is looking for material aid from the French. And so they're like, oh, this guy knows the queen. Uh, We should make him a major general. But because of this, he's now like the last living senior officer uh, in the Continental Army by the 1820s, which by that point, you're dealing with if middle-aged people in the 1820s and 1830s were all born after the revolution. So mm-hmm. like fully fledged adults with, you know, wives and kids, uh, husbands, mortgages, you know, jobs and careers, they were all too young to have been around for the American revolution. And so Lafayette serves as a unifying figure in the national collective imagination um, mm-hmm. as somebody who was really important to, uh, to that story. But then as we move on right after his death, it, you know, he, he does start to sort of sink back down, even though everything got named after him. Uh, right. So that was, the, that was the one sort of like lasting legacy is we have everything in this country is named after Lafayette. But we, we, you know, the difference between them is I think that the, the Americans, I think, continue to treat Lafayette as somebody who is sort of a, a heroic positive force in not just our own history, but in the world. And then, yeah, you go over to France 
And it's, and it's, who are you, who are you talking about? Like, I never even heard about this guy. Oh, he's one of the ones who couldn't get the job done. And so real political leaders like Robespierre and then later Napoleon come along or Talleyrand, uh, you know, who are actually good at politics, uh, take over. And that's, those are the people that the French like to talk about as opposed to, as opposed to Lafayette. So sorry for the interruption, but we're going to take a brief break now for a word from our sponsors. Do you think if circumstances had been different, perhaps if the relationship in France hadn't soured like it did, that he would be remembered differently? Um, Because we like to talk about um, history and memory and why people end up being so memorable and and some don't. We talk about uh, Nathaniel Green and how important he was to the revolution, but he died young. Mm -hmm. And so people don't know about him. Mm-hmm. And it seems to me that Lafayette isn't as well known as, I mean, this personal opinion as he should be. And I'm just wondering, hey, I agree with you. would he be? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. Would he do you think he'd be even better known in the U.S. if his relationship hadn't soured in France? Do you think that impacted his global reputation? Um, this two worlds, if he had stayed in one world, you know, yeah. could that have impacted his, you know, his historical memory? I, you know, honestly, I don't feel like whatever is going on in terms of historical memory with Lafayette in France really has much of an impact on the way that Americans think about him. Right. Um, I don't, I don't get that sense Mm -hmm. um, that even, even in his own lifetime, people were happy to talk about and laud and correspond with Lafayette and treat him really well, even as back in France, um, there are times when he's he's in retirement. Uh, he's he has become like a literally obscure figure, mm-hmm. um, and is is not as celebrated over there. And, but I don't think that like the the complexity of the relationship between the United States and France after the French Revolution with like the quasi war and uh, mm-hmm. and all of the and all of that stuff. Right. I don't really think that any of that ever touched Lafayette. In turn, mm-hmm. I don't think it ever tarnished his reputation amongst Americans. What I will say is that, you know, when all of this stuff is going on, like his his intention um, after he fled the revolution in 1792, really all the way through, you know, he gets arrested by the Austrians. He winds up in a dungeon, essentially, for five years uh, in solitary confinement, which is just like this horrible experience that he goes through. When he comes out the other side of that, he wants to emigrate to the United States. Mm -hmm. That's where he wants to go. This is where he knows people like him. <laughs> you know, he's, he's, <laughs> right. having he's having difficulty <laughs> in Europe finding people that don't want to kill him or lock him in dungeons. And so he's like, I know I'll move with my family to the United States. And he's, he's openly talking about how he wants to buy property in Virginia near Mount Vernon, but he's getting letters from Washington and from Hamilton saying you shouldn't come right now. Um, and it has less to do with Lafayette as it does with this relationship with France and also the political dynamic in the United States. You know, uh, we were we were fracturing and polarizing at that time between the Federalists and the Democratic Republicans, between the Jeffersonians and the Hamiltonians. And they both sort of looked at Lafayette as somebody who they were friendly with. Lafayette is very good friends, both with Hamilton and with Jefferson, even at a time where Hamilton and Jefferson are ready to kill each other. Um, but they're saying to Lafayette, if you come here, what's going to happen is you're going to have to choose sides and you're going to either be, you're going to have to side with the Federalists or you're going to have to side with Jeffersonians. Right. Um, and that would, they were concerned that that would actually destroy his reputation in the United States more than anything else was getting involved in the parochial disputes that are going on in the early American Republic. Mm-hmm. Um, and I, and I think that that would have done it. I think that he would have a very different um, reputation in the United States had he successfully emigrated. And I think that the right. fact that he stayed in France and stayed aloof to everything that was going on in the United States uh, allowed him to remain a national icon in right. the States that everybody could look to. And so even when, when he's back in 1824, I mean, you guys know this, the, the presidential election of 1824 is one of the most like chaotic and uh, contentious presidential elections in American history. This is Jackson versus John Quincy Adams versus Henry Clay versus uh, the guy who had a stroke and dropped out. Uh, God, what was his name? Because Lafayette knew him too. Lafayette knew all four of the guys that were in huh. uh, that were in that race. And mm-hmm. when, he would, when he would come to town, there are these uh, descriptions of like the, the 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 political figures who the day before um, were ready to stab each other in the back with poison knives, 
sat around a table together, all toasted the Marquis de Lafayette. And then when he left, they went right back to trying to stab each other in the back <laughs> with poison knives. And, and this, I mean, it's a very vivid language. I mean, thank, thank God some of these guys were trying to like, uh, you know, like make a buck selling newspapers. So they wrote with like very vivid language uh, that you can then put in your biography of the Marquis de Lafayette, which I did. Right. Um, but uh, you, you, see, you see this all over the place, you know, like at this time is when, when all of America is at each other's throats, he can sit down with Jackson and he can sit down with John Quincy Adams and they will both say, dude, we are so glad you're here. We love you. And I think that happens because he stays in France less than uh, than staying in the United States. Yeah, because he never has to get his hands dirty. Right. He can stay above the fray. He, he's <laughs> right. absolutely above the fray. He is aloof right. and beyond it. And as long as they keep it in the realm of abstractions, right? The nation is great. Liberty is great. The revolution is great. Mm-hmm. As long as you don't get into any, and they never really talked about sort of the real contentious issues in politics at the time, um, because then he would have had to have taken sides and he didn't by that, by that point, he, he himself didn't want to do it. He wanted to, he believed that he could be a unifying figure. He believed in the American Republic and wanted it to succeed and believed very early in that tour that this was a role that he could play, that during this hyper-partisan election, that wherever he went, everybody would be reminded, oh, right, we're all Americans and we fought this war and uh, and we succeeded, and the American Republic will hopefully, you know, continue and succeed in the future. That's interesting that you talk about him being sort of embodied by abstraction at the t- at that time, because I do think that even how he reads today, and this isn't talking about your book specifically, just a general understanding of Lafayette is. He see, uh, specifically talking about like abolition and his dedication to the ideas of liberty and freedom, fraternity, like the stuff that he fought for throughout his life. Um, he comes across as a pretty convicted guy in an era when most dudes sort of were saying one thing and then doing another. Um, right. He was he was yeah. he was a bit dim and naive. And so he wasn't much of a hypocrite. <laughs> <laughs> right. Right. I was going to say, like, well, yeah, do you, would you have any, any thoughts on his convictions on, on that yeah. on that stuff? Or was he? Yeah. Well, I mean, because when you get it, when you get into the stuff about like, you know, the liberty versus slavery, you know, debates, um, you know, Lafayette, it, it takes it takes something of a towering genius like a Jefferson uh, or a Madison to be able to say like, you know, this is all about liberty, but also I'm a slave owner to be able to compartmentalize those two things and, and hold those right. two thoughts in your head simultaneously and not have them like break your brain. Lafayette couldn't really ever do that. And so he, he just assumed that, you know, eman- the emancipation of the slaves would be part and parcel of uh, what the American revolution had been all about and that it would come, it was coming slowly and it was coming slower than he wanted it to. Um, but it would eventually come. But I think to your, the point that you were originally making, Lafayette is somebody who was very, he was very savvy in terms of like what we, I think call, we would call like media relations at this Hmm. point. Um, This is, this is very, like, it's not mass media necessarily in the way that we think of it uh, in the 20th century, but he was somebody who was very conscious of symbols and he was very conscious of really basic sort of like posters, colors. Like, I mean, the tricolor comes from Lafayette, right? He's the one who took the blue, white, and red and put them together. When he's designing the National Guard uniforms, uh, when he is thinking about what sorts of posters are going up in the streets to uh, to celebrate things or to promote things, this idea, like like putting his portrait above the word liberty and then having that promulgate throughout Europe and throughout the Atlantic world, like he's very consciously doing this. This is not by accident. I think that he does have a kind of instinctive understanding of the way uh, of the way media works. And I think that uh, uh, because of this, he was happy to be considered a symbol. Right. This is not something that I think was projected onto him. It's not that he um, other people were like Lafayette is a symbol of liberty. This is something that he himself was was very happy uh, and believed that there needed to be like a face to go along with some of these ideals. And he he was very, very happy to be that symbol. And as you say, he's in correspondence with so many people. Uh, There are Greek revolutionaries and Polish revolutionaries and Italians that are writing him. Simone Bolivar is writing him. Um, And he really. Uh, you know, he took a lot of pride in the fact that he was in a very basic way, in a very symbolic way, the idea of Lafayette, liberty and equality is animating all of these other revolutions um, to achieve things that he believed in, in places where they had not been achieved yet. Um, And so, yeah, he was, he was very happy to live, you know, his private life as an individual, but also very much wanted 
to be a symbol that was present everywhere, uh, very basic sort of rudimentary symbols uh, across the world. The two worlds, excuse me. <laughs> so you've been doing um, a long book tour. I think you, you've already done a book tour. You've been to a ton of places. I'm sure you've talked to a lot of people who've read your book. Yeah, yeah. I'm at the, I'm at the end of a three-week tour where wow. I've been in a different city basically every day. <laughs> yeah. So I'm wondering... The people you talk to, do they seem like they knew the French life of Lafayette, sort of his, um, you know, fall from grace in France, his imprisonment? Is that something that they're aware of? Or do Americans tend to just know him as, you know, one of the heroes of the revolution? Um, sort of what's what's known? How How is he seen? I, I think that in general, Lafayette is still seen as uh, somebody who was in the American Revolution, like if okay. he's known at all. Um, it's, he was somebody who was in the American revolution and he had some kind of special relationship with Washington. Mm -hmm. And then of course he's a French guy from Hamilton, which is great <laughs> for me because I used to say, I want to write a book about Lafayette and people would say, who's that? And then I was saying, oh, I'm writing a book about Lafayette. And they would say, oh, the guy from Hamilton, we like him. He was great. He was really funny. Um, <laughs> and so that, that's, that's, I think the general sort of like pervasive understanding of Lafayette. Now, when it comes to me going from, from bookstore to bookstore, uh, and meeting people like meeting people in real life, like these are fans of the Revolutions podcast. Mm -hmm. um, this is a, this is a paperback tour. So the, so the book itself came out a year ago. So I'm walking into rooms full of people who are very well versed in Lafayette because Mike Duncan has, has explained to them ad nauseum uh, every single detail of Lafayette's full and complete life. And one of the things that's so animated me to write this book in the first place. Like if, if Lafayette had just been a teenager in the revolution and then, um, and then gotten up to some hijinks in the French revolution and then departed the scene, I'm not sure that I ever would have written a book about him. I, I, hmm. I that's fine. And it's interesting. Uh, mm -hmm. and it's good. You know, this is, you know, kind of like a Tom Paynish uh, life, but it's when I find him having this really complicated relationship with Napoleon Bonaparte, right? They're in correspondence with each other. You know, Lafayette is in the room when Napoleon abdicates. And then it's like, he didn't retire from politics. He's in the chamber of delegates. He's in the liberal opposition. He's joining like underground Carbonari conspiracies to overthrow Louis the 18th. He's now in his fifties. Uh, and then he gets to be 70 years old and he's like inspecting barricades in Paris in July of 1830. And that's, that's the stuff that really motivated me to be like, you know, this guy did not live just this very short, you know, life of some youthful exploits. He mm -hmm. was involved in this stuff for 50 consecutive years and he mm -hmm. never really stopped. And even on his deathbed, the last letter he wrote, which was to the Glasgow Emancipation Society, who had, mm -hmm. who had written him a letter uh, asking him for information about the early days of the abolitionist movement, um, because Lafayette was one of the few people who was, who was around in the 1830s, who was there in the early 1780s, right? When things get going, Lafayette's involved in the emancipation movement starting in 1782, 1783. Mm -hmm. And in that letter that he writes back to the Glasgow Emancipation Society, he's like, I, you know, I've got this speech that I want to give in the Chamber of Delegates, but I can't do it because I can't shake this chest cold that I've got. Um, but he was upset that he was confined to a bed and then he died like I, like a week later. Mm. Um, and so this, this is what gets me. And so when I, when I go around now and what I hope that hero of two worlds accomplishes and that the revolutions podcast accomplishes is to understand the fullness of his life, not from 1777 to 1792, but from 1777 to 1834. Yeah. It's a, it's a long life at a very, pivotal time in history where a lot happened. <laughs> yeah. And he was, I mean, the guy's in the room. Um, and one of the, one of the things that I find appealing about him though, too, as a person is, you know, as a biographer, I think it's, I think it's very natural to want to run events through your subject and say like, and, you know, events happen the way that they did because of something my subject did. And, you know, this is the agency that Lafayette had in this particular instance. And things would have been very different had Lafayette not been here because that's what we want to do. We want to explain like why these people are important. Um, mm -hmm. And there's definitely times in the French revolution where Lafayette himself is a pivotal figure, but I find it uh, very relatable and humane that, uh, and human, excuse me, that there are lots of other times where he himself is being swept up in events and he's being carried along by events that are beyond his control. Um, and so he's not like a Napoleonish figure or like an Ali, a Julius Caesar figure where, you know, you can really say like, this is a capital G, capital M, great man, where like history runs right. through him and everything that he did, like makes the world. Like that's not true of Lafayette. Mm -hmm. He was there. 
Sometimes he was pivotal. Sometimes he was being swept up. Sometimes he was, sometimes he was on the sidelines. Sometimes he was the center of attention. And I find that uh, to be something that's quite appealing about him as a historical figure, because I think it's a, a very uh, true true for all of us, that this is the way we live. Some, sometimes the things we do matter in the big picture. And sometimes, I don't know about you guys, but I feel like I am being caught up in events that are far beyond my control. Yes, more often than not. Yeah. Mm-hmm. yeah. yeah. The, yeah. the reality so. is it's, it's, it's probably a little bit of both, depending on what time mm-hmm. and what's going on at the time. And exactly. That's a great point. He's a great example of that. Yeah. So it was really fun to get to write. It was really fun to get to write about him in that way. So in being a little less secretive about our historiography, about this being about historiography, um, do you see anything in the current uh, understanding, viewpoint, um, beliefs about Lafayette that sort of reflect anything in our current day society? Um, We always look at, you know, in historiography, you look at what we study and how we interpret history and how that comes from, you know, our specific generation, our specific era. So is there is there anything that's sort of jumping out at you that when you're seeing how people are understanding Lafayette, perhaps becoming a Lafayette fan, um, if that is a reflection of anything going on today, either politically or just generally in the U.S.? Well, I, you know, OK, so the United States is a bit of a mess right now politically. <laughs> I think we would all agree on that. Yes. Uh, a nice a nice thing though to keep in mind is that the United States has always been kind of a hot mess politically and that it's you know true. You, that if you're sitting there and you're reading about like one nice thing uh, a very basic thing about reading about a guy like Lafayette is you're back there in the 1820s and you're like, oh, wow, people were at, people were practically taking up arms uh, if Jackson, you know, they have an encounter with some Jacksonians in Pennsylvania that were saying, like, we will take up arms if Jackson, if our man loses this election. Um, so what we're living through right now is not like a break with a historical norm. It's This is pretty par for the course for us. Um, we've always mm-hmm. been a bit mad <laughs> politically. <laughs> um, but what, what I see, that there's a couple of things. There is the business about Lafayette being this symbol for like liberal ideals. Right. And I do think that there is, a, there is a certain degree to which Lafayette represents the core founding principles of the United States. Mm-hmm. Um, and he did that on purpose. You know, this was, this was a conscious choice that he made. He wanted to be associated with it on that level. So he maneuvered in the direction of the United States. And I think the United States kind of adopted many of the things that he wanted. It was a very symbiotic relationship. Um, but, you know, having constitutions, having elections, participatory government, civil rights, like these things mattered a lot to him. And they should continue to matter a lot to us today. Um, what I, I think personally, whatever we do as we go forward to kind of like resolve and uh, and hopefully, uh, you know, work through what we're living with right now is that we won't pitch overboard those kinds of civil rights, um, because I do think that they are essential to a free society. And Lafayette believed that they were free to an essential society. And what's nice about Lafayette is you also get the critique of slavery and race relations in mm-hmm. the United States. He is not somebody who was blinkered about that stuff. Um, when he said liberty and equality, I do believe that he meant liberty and equality. Um, that it wasn't enough to just have it be liberty and equality for white uh, white property owners, but it should be for everyone. Um, and so I think that he is like a living symbol of that. What what I take away from him and, and the reason why one of the reasons why I look to him, you know, say, as a role model, um, as, as somebody you can laud, is that Lafayette is not somebody who believed in providence or um, the force of history as something that was going to take care of the things that needed to be taken care of. Right. He was uh, he was a social reformer. He was somebody who was a to to he was a bleeding heart. Like I, like he the guy's a bleeding heart liberal. And mm-hmm. when he when he would encounter injustices, when he's told you know these peasants are starving, he's like let's start a grain silo. When he's like you know the, these prisons are in disrepair and they are horrible, he's like we need to reform the prison system. Uh, Protestants are uh, basically legally Ill, they are illegal in France. Okay, we need we need toleration for the Protestants. Um, and obviously he's involved in the emancipation movement. Anytime he comes across injustice. He's like, we, I want to take care of this. And 
to take care of things like that. It is not enough to simply sit back and say, oh, well, history will take care of it. Providence will take care of it. You know, if you look throughout history, you know, things were worse then and now they're better now. And that'll just keep happening without anybody having to lift a finger or do anything. It's just, you know, the, the, the arc of the universe bends toward the moral arc of the universe bends towards justice. I don't think that Lafayette believed that the moral arc of the universe bends towards justice. I think Mm -hmm. that he believed that individuals and groups had to be the ones that bent it towards justice. And so he spent his time, he spent his attention, he spent his money, he staked his reputation. uh, He took enormous risks. Guy winds up in a dungeon fighting for what he believes in, gets out of that dungeon, goes right back to work. Dude, he never stopped. He wasn't like, oh, I've been chastened uh, now. And so I guess I'll just keep my head down. Uh, He goes right back to work. So I find him as somebody who is is a living living proof and a, and a and a role model in the sense that it takes active activity from people to get things done that people want to get done um that it's never 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 enough to just sit back and and hope that these abstract metaphysical you know mystical forces that we sort of can subconsciously rely on uh to get the job done and if lafayette was here now he'd just be like okay well what are we going to do we got to do something over here over here over here over here here's some money here's some time uh you know let's start a society let's start a newspaper and that is how he would take care of the social problems that that he and that's how he took care of the social problems in his age and i think how he would want us to take care of the social problems in our age and so i i feel different now having written all this stuff about him, like when I look at my own role in, you know, in the United States in the 21st century and things that I see that I think we're not doing well, um, is it enough for me to just be like, no, it'll all resolve itself. No, we should get involved in these things. We really should. Yeah, that's actually uh, a, a great point. Um, the, 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 one of the things that you talked about, like the be, him being a laudable uh, uh, as an example, um, I think it's really interesting him coming from such a privileged background and actually genuinely putting that stuff on the line. There yeah. aren't, it's, it's not super common. I mean, the, people were, or at least, you know, you see a lot of folks land on their feet <laughs> during these things. Like, you know, the, the, the new government's the same as the old government, just, you know, different names, slap, uh, yeah, like, you know, yeah, yeah, spackle yeah, on yeah, it. Yeah. Um, it's a, it's a much of the same folks. for another. Yeah. Exactly. Yeah, yeah. Um, but he genuinely, do you, do you think he actually like saw that risk or was it, it like, again, <laughs> his naivete is like, this is just the right thing to do. I should just do uh, it. Well, <laughs> being, being completely dispossessed of all his property in 1792 was something that came as a bit of a shock to him. Uh, sure. I don't think he necessarily <laughs> saw that coming. But uh, I think a lot of the other things, um, yeah, he knew he was taking great risks. And he was willing to take those great risks and believe that that nothing great could ever be accomplished unless you were taking great risks. And then when in those times when the risks didn't pay off, when he failed, when he was driven out, when he finds himself in solitary confinement in a dungeon, um, it, even though he lost everything and everyone, to, uh, he um, he comes out the other side of that being like, well, I guess I'll just start to rebuild a little bit and then go back to work. Hmm. Yeah, that is admirable. Uh, yeah, that is a, I'm, I'm glad you were able to write the book to tell that part of his story, mm-hmm. you know, as opposed to a swashbuckler. Yeah, guys, 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 yeah, guy's not perfect. Like, don't get me wrong, right? Um, it's I'm sympathetic to him. It's not a hagiography here. Uh, and he made mistakes <laughs> and he's got his warts and all. Um, but yeah, there's definitely things about him that that I'm impressed by and that you know, I think sort of coming out the other side of the book um, that are principles that I'd like to make sure are you know, active in my own life. Now, I'm sure there's one community question that we had some from a couple of, uh, of folks that were interested. And I'm sure this is the least favorite question of an author going on at the end of a book tour. About a book. Oh, great. What you, <laughs> you got anything uh, in the in the docket? Are they interested in like what, what's on the what's on the future horizons for for uh, Mike? Duncan? Oh yeah, I definitely have lots of things on the docket, and I'm not saying what any of them are sure. uh, because I got to <laughs> close to the I got to play close to the vest to make sure that they actually happen the way that I think that they're going to happen instead of promising things that I don't deliver on. I have done that once or twice in my career, and I will never do it again. <laughs> Fair enough. That's mm-hmm. that's smart. That's smart. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so, I, you know, touch touch the stove three times. I might start to learn my lesson. <laughs> not the first time. No, no, never, 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 never the first time. But, you know, like third time, I'm like, oh, that stove's hot. I shouldn't touch that anymore. <laughs> so do you have a favorite um, story about Lafayette, either funny or inspiring? Um, when I do research, it's always the little things that, yeah. you know, just kind of make them seem more real. And you kind of feel like, 
oh, yeah, I know people oh. like this. You know, is there something oh, that just kind of sticks out? Okay, so sure, I, I do have something about this because we talked about it. We kind of touched on it a little bit. This this very contentious relationship that he had with his father-in-law. Yeah. Um, and what you know, if you don't, if if you haven't read Hero of Two Worlds, the Marquis de Lafayette and the Age of Revolution, by all means, go to your local independent bookstore and buy it and read it. Um, but now he a married in. Yeah, yeah. Now available in paperback. Um, he, he married into one of the most powerful families in France, like second, like there's the Royal family, the Bourbons, and then second to them is the Noailles family. And they've been attached to the monarchy for like hundreds of years. Lafayette marries into this family. He marries Adrienne. Um, and he is kind of a disappointment. He, he doesn't fit in at court. Um, he, he is kind of a bumbler. He doesn't dance well. He's not really good at, at getting along in society. And so his father-in-law becomes progressively less enthusiastic about the fact that this guy has married into his family and married his daughter. Um, and when Lafayette gets it in his head that he's going to run away from this scene that he is very, very uncomfortable in and join the Continental Army, there is a number of um, uh, of weeks, really, where he's kind of on the lamp. He's he's disappeared. He went on, He went off to Britain. He came back from Britain. He completely dropped off the radar wrote a couple of letters to his father-in-law and to Adrienne saying, guess what? I've joined the Continental Army. Um, I've got a boat waiting for me in Bordeaux. I'm heading there now. I'm sailing away and I'm doing this. This causes like this huge, just like massive uproar in Paris and in Versailles. Um, he's kicked up a lot of dust on his way out the door. They don't know where he is. The king is sending out people looking for him. There's a letter get cachet that has maybe been issued by the king for his arrest. Um, and what he is ordered to do by the king is when, whenever they find him to go from Bordeaux to Marseille and in Marseille, he will be met by the Duke Diane, who is his father-in-law and they will go on a six month tour of Italy together where Lafayette will be basically broken, right? This is, this is his punishment. Like they will, and, and Diane will keep an eye on him every single day and they will go from town to town and Lafayette will be stuck on this six month vacation through Italy with this guy who doesn't like him. <laughs> and so he does, he talks himself out of this. He's like, I'm not going to Marseille. I'm getting on the boat. I'm getting on La Victoire. He sails away. And so then the first letters that kind of show up in, in Lafayette's collected correspondence are the letters that he was writing on the boat on La Victoire um, back to Adrienne explaining what's going on. And it's just like he was on the boat for weeks. And so there would just be like a different date, like when he sort of picked up the letter and then he mailed it when he finally got to Charleston. Um, but in that, what we find, there's this great question. Why did Lafayette go join the Continental Army? Was it for, was it his idealism? Was it wanting to get revenge on the British uh, for killing his father? Um, was it, was, what exactly is it that's motivating him? On the boat, when he's writing to Adrienne, he's saying things like the idea of spending six months with your dad in Italy, <laughs> so intolerable that there was nothing I could do but leave. Like, I'm sorry, there was, there, I had no other choice. Can you even imagine how torturous that would have been? This is what was on his mind um, when, he, when he first sails away from Bordeaux. And I was reading that. I was like, oh, I get it. You know, this, you know, the later, the later you, you get you get these um these sort of like autobiographical essays that he writes in like the 1820s and 1830s where he was like, oh, I was so, you know, revved up by the idea of liberty that I just had to go join my brethren in the cause of all mankind. And you're like, dude, you just didn't want to hang out for six months in Italy with this guy you didn't like. <laughs> he wanted freedom from his father-in-law. He wanted freedom. He like had to get freedom, but freedom from who? Freedom from the Duke Diane because he's just living under the terminal disappointment of this of this grand French noble um, as you're, you know, sitting around in Naples. <laughs> he just I, couldn't stand the idea. I love the fact punishment. that that was his yeah, that that's his punishment. They're like, listen, we could throw, we could we could really do throw him in jail. We could do something or whatever. We could publicly embarrass him. No, we're just going to send him, put him in a carriage, <laughs> and ride to Italy, and expect him to show up to leave for that six months. <laughs> that's very funny. Yeah, mm -hmm. that's very funny. That's that is fantastic. very relatable. Um, <laughs> well, uh, thanks so much for you know taking the time to to chat with us today, Mike. Uh, you know, we we both really enjoyed the book. Uh, um, Thank you. I'm really glad that you wrote it. Obviously, um, I'm a big fan big fan of your podcasting career. Hope there's many more. Yeah. Thank uh, you. Uh, uh, podcasts. There, there will be more. I mean, I was I was real cagey about what I'm what I'm going to do, but like, there's there will be more stuff on the horizon. Podcast. There will be another podcast that comes along. Thank you so much for being with us. Yeah, thanks so much for being here. Um, Hero of the Two Worlds is available on paperback. The link is in the description uh, for the episode description if you want like to check it out. Um, and uh, 
if, uh, Mike, if, if people wanted to follow you on social media or, or, or keep track of what you do, where, where should they uh, go and find you? Don't be on social media. Them. What are you doing, guys? Come on. <laughs> oh, you tweet I'm, all the time. I, I know I do because I'm addicted, <laughs> sir, and it's not good. Do as um, I say, not as I do. Exactly. No, I am at Mike Duncan on Twitter. Uh, I'm not on Facebook or Instagram or anything owned by Zuckerberg, uh, but I am on Twitter. Uh, like I make some like in weird, small distinction between those two things, even though there's no <laughs> distinction at all. Uh, and then I'm also at, you know, there's revolutionspodcast.com and any place that you can download podcasts, you can get either revolutions, which is ending right now. Like, like the show is about to wind up after nine years of work. Um, it's ending now. And you can also find the history of Rome, which is my first show. If you, wow. if you want to dive back into Roman history, you can spend 189 episodes with me talking about a thousand years of Roman history. Yeah, so there's plenty out there. Thanks again, Mike. So much out there. Oh, my God. (laughs) Thank you, guys. Thank you. Thank you for listening to the full episode of Too Complicated for History. We hope you enjoyed the episode. And if you did, please leave us a review on Odyssey, Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. Be sure to follow us on our social platforms at 2C4H underscore podcast, or check out the link in the description. This will keep you in the loop for show updates, new episodes, and exclusive content. See you in two weeks for our next episode about the Great Dismal Swamp with Marcus P. Nevius. Too Complicated for History is a podcast from Primary Source Media, produced by Patrick Long and Lynn Price Robbins, edited and mixed by Curtis Fritch, opening theme music by Sheena Biratello. <laughs>